Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I am really excited to be here with Carolyn, who I met in my shift class with Russ Hudson. And this is actually the very first conversation that Carolyn and I have ever had before. I put out a call on the website for people who identify as sexual dominant because I have so many self-pres dominant and social dominance. And I'm imagining that's because I'm sexual blind. And so there's probably stuff about the way I show up that could be kind of cringy, awkward, or weird to like sexually dominant types because we just are going to have a very different flavor. And yeah, I'm really curious about that actually, because, you know, it's all about this attract and repel. And I feel like I repel sexual dominant people more than attract them. So if you are not repelled by me and you are sexual dominant, here's another shout out. Please reach out at contact at enneagramblindspots.com and or call my office 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation. And I would love to just learn more about you and get more sexual instinctual energy into this field. So Carolyn actually reached out to my call and she's identifying as sexual dominant. We'll see if that's true. She's not strongly attached to her stack. Um, She shares my belief that, especially for those of us on a growth journey, we've often done work that has integrated our blind spot in some way, shape, or form, that it just doesn't really feel blind anymore. But her words were through process of elimination, I think I'm social blind. So that may be why she's chosen to be here as a sexual dominant type, because I'm imagining if social's higher in your stack and sexual is also dominant, that there might be a little bit of like, I don't know where I'm going to go. But if you're social blind, sort of showing up in a social space, you're not as connected to those aversions is what I'm going to say. So without further ado, let's say hello to Carolyn. She is a two wing three who is 41 years old and is uh, separated, no children, works as a midwife, lives in Canada, I think in the Vancouver area. She's uh, identifying right now as sexual dominant, self middle, social blind, and she has INF preferences, and the J and the P is still a little up for debate. So, Carolyn, how did I do? Please uh, introduce yourself. Say hello. Hi. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here, and I'm really happy to kind of get a chance to explore and just uh, dive in a little bit to just the complexities of the instincts, which ever since I learned about them kind of has been... uh, activates my brain for sure. I keep (laughs) percolating on this topic. It's such a big topic. Yeah. Um, In the 15 minutes that we spoke before we hit record, we discovered that we are both huge fans of John Lukovic's book, The Instinctual Drives in the Enneagram, and that um, this is part of the reason why you were excited to come onto this podcast is that the instincts is something that you're really curious about. And it sounds like through our class that you have been exposed to Beatrice Chestnut Yoranyu Pai's teachings, as well as Russ Hudson's teachings. Um, you said you don't know Mario's work, but you know, you're noticing that there are three different messages being given around how we come to our instinctual stack from those three teachers at least. 
and I'm going to say that there's a fourth message out there from Mario. I am not aware of the messaging from other teachers. I think they have the loudest voices in the field right now. And for me, I find things I like in all of them and some I have more affinity to than others. It sounds like um, you're a big fan of John as well. Do you want to say why? Why did, why did you like the book? I mean, this book, like, I literally probably highlighted more than what was not highlighted. There was just so much that I was just so interested in. And I think I think what I really loved is how he was talking about, like in some, like that, the concept that maybe the instincts are even more important than the typing in terms of just like how we act it out, I think just really, really spoke to me because I, because I think to me, a lot of the instincts relate a lot to attachment and like, I see kind of some similarities and, and, and parallels there. And so I just, yeah, I just feel like starting in some ways, like starting with the instincts as a way to explore, like how, you know, what our unconscious drives are to, to our behaviors, I think, I think can be such a fuel for change. Like I, I, so I love this idea that, yeah, that kind of starting with the instincts and then moving out of that makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. It's so incredibly powerful. It's really what's, it's what happens first. The instinctual drives fire before we start acting out our personality. Does that resonate with you? Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, if we don't get to the bottom of our instinctual stack, there are just so many opportunities to be confused along the way, don't you think? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I agree with you. I highlighted more of John's book than um, I didn't as well. I've been hungry for content on the instincts because I have a mind. Um, people know I also am into Myers-Briggs and cognitive functions. I'm an ENTP, which means that my um, auxiliary function is introverted thinking. So I'm mapping everything all the time. When, when Whenever somebody's talking to me, if I ever come across as impersonal, it's simply because I'm mapping and I don't do parts. Like I, it's like I can't think and feel exactly at the same time. Like my attention is at one place or another. And that doesn't mean that I can't be integrated, body, heart, mind, but when I'm actually in using my head center, I'm not using my heart center in that moment. When I'm using my heart center, I'm not mapping or thinking. So for me, what it means to be integrated and online is that I have access to all three centers. So I can actually go into my belly and get a sense of, ooh, what's happening in my instinctual drives? I can then shift and go into the heart and be like, hmm, like what's the condition of my heart space and what's it telling me? And then I can shift and I can go into the head and I can be like, and what's going on up here? A lot of noise. Is it really busy? Or are there thoughts here that might actually mean something? (laughs) At least that's how I use it. And when we do our seven minute practice that Russ taught us in our class, that's sort of what we do is like two minutes in the belly two minutes in the heart, two minutes in the head, and then a minute of just sensing the integration space and what that is. How is it when I sort of describe my experience of that? How do you experience your centers? Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with what you're saying that it's, I feel like, you know, I, something that I've been really working on this last year has been to kind of connect to myself more somatically. Like that's been an area that's been a real challenge that I've been working really hard on. And and I've just been so much more aware these days on how if you are disconnected from your body center, that it's impossible to be in presence. 
Yeah. And it's impossible. Like, and, yeah. and so, so then if we connect that to the instincts, it feels like if I'm not connected to my body, then I'm also not in touch with how my instincts are even coming out, you know, how they're even interacting or how they're at play. Yeah. Then even more so than the instincts are kind of hijacking my behaviors. Yes. And so I feel like as I've become more aware of, oh yeah, there's a sensation here that's making me feel like I'm being rejected right now. You know, it's, it's allowing me to kind of, yeah, like be aware of much more of like what's actually, so then now all of a sudden, yeah, there's this drive to want to like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling excluded. So now I need to like bring people closer to me or, you know, or whatever. So it's, it's allowed me to, yeah, understand what's actually fueling my behavior because I can notice what sensations are coming up for me and how yeah. I'm not trying to make myself feel better, you know? That makes so much sense. Um, do you know that I'm also certified in nonviolent communication and that this is a modality that I use in helping people do relational things? Have you heard of nonviolent communication? Uh, yeah. 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 Do you, um, are you in any practice groups or have you had any training with it? No, I'm just familiar of the, of the okay. approach. Do you, do you mind if I unpack what you said in a frame of nonviolent communication just for like, so people can get a sense of what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, I'm, I also do resonant healing with Sarah Payton. Are you familiar with her work at all? I'm not actually, I'm, 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 I have one of her books and I think you posted something about her a while ago that I, it already led me to going, yeah, but now I know which trainings I'm doing next. Like I'm super interested in, in her work, but I'm, I'm also aware that again, a seven ish tendency is like I'm always on to the next thing to study. Yeah. And so I'm trying to actually like rein that in and be like, no, right now yeah. this is what I'm doing and later, but I bet I'm kind of like, yep, I know what I'm doing. Well, and I'm so excited to hear that you're going to do it because as an internal medicine doctor who's moving into the diagnosing of the psycho-spiritual issues and, you know, fancying myself somebody that can support someone in developing their quote unquote treatment plan. Once I know where my dis-ease or the disease of the heart, mind, or soul might lie, I am trying to figure out if somebody comes to talk to me and I want to help them decide like, what should I do next? I think for heart-centered types, resonant healing is a great strategy. I feel like it's a very heart-centered approach and it gives us a way of working with feelings in a way that I haven't had access to through any other modality. So for me as an ENTP, feeling is actually seven out of eight in my cognitive functions, which means it's deeply unconscious. And that of course I have feelings, but I'm a three probably because a lot of threes have feeling deep in the stack. It's like we're the middle of the heart center. And so our hearts are actually one of our superpowers. And yet the ego shuts it down, it defends it, and we don't lead with feelings. We're think-do, completely bypassing the heart. So resonant healing was so key for me doing the heart-centered work that I needed to do to be able to even get into feeling. Like It was really mind-blowing for me. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I want to highlight about these works is that it does start with the body. What you were saying, like if we can't ground in the body, we haven't even begun, which is why in almost every spiritual practice, it's, you know, like in Buddhism, it's mindfulness of the body. That's where we start. Can we even take our seat and just check in with the body in a body scan or whatever kind of practice that we do, a sensing, looking, listening practice, however that's done. 
So once we are in the body, we can start to appreciate sensations. And these sensations are generated by unconscious emotional circuits. Have you heard of Yak Pangsep? Are you familiar with his work at all? Okay. So Yak Pangsep is a scientist and his work is brilliant. And he identified seven circuits and Sarah has added an eighth one that I strongly agree with. And these circuits are sexuality, care, seeking circuit, fear, grief, disgust, rage, and play. So the reason that these circuits exist is that every mammal gets these circuits activated. Like look at your dog and they will be exhibiting all eight of these circuits. So as humans, stimuli come in, whether it's an external stimuli or an internally generated stimuli, like a thought or my stomach growled or something like that. And then an emotional circuit is triggered in an unconscious way. So all of this is pre-choice. We, you know, we have instincts that are going to be driving us and we have emotional circuits that are activated and those emotional circuits start to create sensation. Mm -hmm. Now, after the sensations, we are going to start having thoughts about the sensations. So when I heard you say, if I'm feeling rejected or I'm feeling abandoned, I just wanted to name that in nonviolent communication, we call those faux feeling words. They're not actual feelings. Those are actually thoughts. But in English, we use the word, I feel abandoned. I feel rejected. But that's actually a thought. I'm having the thought that you are rejecting me. I'm having the thought that you are abandoning me. And every heart-centered person has had the thought, I'm being rejected or abandoned. And when we go to the person that is providing the stimulus for our thought, in my experience, half the time they're like, why would you think that based off of this behavior? Have you had that experience? sure. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if we've got our sexual instinct online, you know, if you're a heart centered person that has access to your sexual instinct, I would say that these are thoughts that operate way too much of our mental real estate than we would enjoy. So once I have this thought, now I start having feelings. So when I have the thought that you've rejected me, or I have the thought that you've abandoned me, I'm now going to feel nervous, anxious, upset, concerned, you know, these are all feelings, which are different from the emotional circuits, which are unconscious. The feelings we have, we have a little more control over. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks for letting me outline that because I've been working on how to explain this for a while. And you just gave me the perfect opportunity to lay that out for listeners. And I'm going to reference this episode so that I don't have to repeat this in the future. I also love that you let me bounce it off of you because if there was part of it that you weren't tracking or that didn't sound right, I always love getting that feedback too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thanks. So now I'm going to bring it back because that's what we call a tangent. So tell me a little bit about, (laughs) that's what extroverted intuition does. It's like, ching, we're going here and now we're going to come back. So if I start to disorient you, you also get to ask for a pause. I don't know where we are or where we're going and you're making me crazy. You are absolutely (laughs) Welcome to do that as well. So you identify as a two with a three wing. You haven't known the Enneagram that long. I would love to hear how did you land on that and why are you thinking your stack is what it is? I got started with the Enneagram. I mean, funnily enough, I think it had been brought to my attention, I think a few years back here and there, people, oh, do you know about the Enneagram? And I was kind of like, no, and didn't have an interest. 
Uh, and then I listened to a podcast um, that I, I someone I don't follow anymore, but Brene Brown was interviewing Christopher, Christopher Hortz. And all of a sudden it was like the right moment. I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of did a big dive that next year and kind of, you know, got a few books. And then there was like the Enneagram Summit with Jessica's, you know, leadership network. And, uh, and then that opportunity for the class came up and I was mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, like I, I totally want to do this. And so then I signed up for the class. So I was, I'm brand new to the Enneagram really like in total, like a couple of, a couple of years. Yeah. And well, you started in a wonderful way. You have no bad habits to unlearn. Cause I think that sometimes people encounter the Enneagram the way we encounter like astrology and Cosmo or something like that. You're really learning from amazing teachers and setting up a great base, which will probably enable you to use it as a real, real, uh, as a very skillful tool. I, f- I feel super fortunate. Yeah. I realized pretty quickly on that. I was like, yeah, this was lucky that this happened when it happened timing wise, I think for sure. Yeah. Did you know you were a two before the class started or did you figure that out over the year? That I did. I, I signed up for like rest, like the Enneagram Institute's class and, or the, the test, I mean, the ready. And, uh, and it was pretty, you know, it resonated with me. I mean, I was kind of one of those people that uh, in taking the test, like the two, two was the top one. And then um, one and nine were actually the same number. Like they were all, and they were all like one and three and they were all like one number off. So, I mean, I was really close in that, but in reading the description of the two, I was, I never had much doubt. Like yeah. I was definitely like, yeah. So you but. live in nine, one, two, three land. Like those are your most dominant energies. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you know you're not a one? Uh, I think in... I think a few things like I think first of all like if we go to the like the different like feelings like anger is not my primary like go- emotion I think going to yeah like I think I just, I, I'm more of a heart like it's a more of a heart center type I think that was that was evident to me that like my my like issues are around the object relations and all of that and 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 not so much around like body autonomy remind our listeners what the object relation for point two is it's with which figure uh, remember father Father. father figure. Okay. And do you have any like stories or experiences about what your object relations are around like point two? Like how has that influenced your experience of point two? Not even necessarily specific examples, but I think it's just more like, yeah, kind of what you said earlier, like the amount of like m- mental real estate that is in my brain around like how I am, you know, like what my relationships are and how I'm experienced other, other people through my own lens. Like it's that, like that is absolutely where I spend most of my like thinking mind, you know? In. Yeah. And how do you know you're a rejection type? How do you experience rejection? Not her asking me that a different way. Yeah. Um, so just for listeners, there are three types on the Enneagram. Twos, fives, and eights are rejection types. Three, six, and nines are attachment types. And one, four, and sevens are frustration types. So what this means is that when our defenses get triggered, we are going to act in that way if we're not conscious in that moment. So as an attachment type, I get really, really worried about the attachment. And when things go badly, I sort of, Courtney Smith had this analogy of like, there are like talons that start coming out of my body that try to go into yours to reestablish the attachment because without the attachment, I feel adrift at sea. A frustration type 
they, I mean, my mom's a one and I also, you know, have some friends who are fours and sevens. And I honestly think that they just like being frustrated. Like I used to think as an attachment type and as a three who likes to please people and make people happy that I was going to make the one, fours and sevens in my life happy, satisfied, and no longer experience frustration. And I have let that go. Like that's been a huge thing for me this year is to recognize, wait a minute, they're not, I'm not going to fix their attachment to being frustrated any more than they're going to fix my wiring to be an attachment type. Like that just is what it is. So when we're looking at two fives and eights, fives reject in that, like I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. And I was asking you this kind of as a leading question, Carolyn, because the rejection types still confuse me, but fives definitely like reject if like they think you're stupid or you don't have enough knowledge or like something like that, like, no, not you, you know, and they withdraw and go inward. Eights reject if it's more of a body centered thing, like around the turf. Like if you are a threat, if you are penetrating my space without permission, I'm going to have very big walls and I'm going to like attack you and be aggressive because they're an assertive type. Rejection with point two is very, very different. The way that I've heard it described is that a point two is actually, and this is average point two who's doing their point two thing, that it's so much about, I am here to meet your needs and I don't have needs. Like I just, and, and you're so wired into what other people's needs are that you repress your own needs. But what's happening unconsciously, as we know about point two, is that their passion is pride. And so they're actually doing so much of what they're doing because there is this unspoken expectation that because I'm so good at meeting your needs, you're going to meet my needs, which is why twos can be exquisitely sensitive to a lack of acknowledgement and appreciation. And if that somebody is not, you know, doing what they want them to do, even though they didn't explicitly ask, because it's very hard for a point two to express a need, then they might go to their disintegrated eight era where they get really emotional and really reactive and maybe even violent because it all spills out, all these unmet needs. So a two, when they're entering relationship, is really only showing half of themselves because they're here to meet your needs, but it takes a long time and a lot of self-awareness before a two can really open themselves up to allowing somebody to know what their needs are and to receive. Twos are kind of perpetually putting out. So they're so worried about rejection that they are rejecting in an unconscious way. So as I sort of went through that frame for our listeners, what lands, what's not landing? Do you have any stories from your experience that could flush that out for us? What comes up? Well, what's interesting, I mean, what came to, up to me though, it was just kind of interesting because with like the two wing three is that like my attachment style is I'm disorganized. Like I have a mixture of like insecure and avoidant attachment. And it's kind of, and while those are not associated with the numbers, I feel like in listening to you talk, like I, I resonate a bit more with, like with an attachment style. Like I'm, I'm, I'm frequently looking more for like reassurance within my, my circle of friends that like, we're, we're okay. Or I can feel, you know, it, it, um, and of course, I mean, I'm so much more aware now, so it's less of an impact, but like, 
you know, I can, I can quickly get into a place of insecure attachment, like with friends, but my reaction is to be more kind of avoidant, you know, like, or like my way of, and so, you know, but it's, so it's kind of like, but then my, my response to my anxiety is to respond in an avoidant way. And so, so it's kind of like, I'm good. I don't actually need you. So I think what happens is that like, yeah, like sometimes I'll feel like a need is not being met, um, you know, whether I've communicated it or not actually to other people. And then my, my defense is to, is to kind of like push people away, um, you know, or not push, push people away, but to, but to kind of close in on myself and to be like, I'm, yeah, I'm good. Fine. Like I don't actually need you. Yeah. Well, that makes so much sense. And by the way, um, I'm a three with a two wing. So we kind of mirror each other. So what you're talking about deeply resonates with me. And let me go ahead and try to frame that. So what I hear you say is, I think as heart-centered, image-centered types, we all have, we are, we're all worried about what other people are thinking about us. You know, that's kind of what the two, three, and four has in common. We just deal with it differently. So as a three and an assertive type, if I'm worried about my attachment to you, you're definitely going to like see me coming in at you because I'm assertive. I think that with fours, when they are interesting because they do that push-pull thing a lot. So when you piss them off, they're instinctively going to withdraw, but then they get worried that they're not connected to you, so they come back in, you know, if they care about you. I think that with a two, because you're image-centered, and, you know, obviously love and attachment is important. Relational things is a core thing for twos. It totally makes sense that you're going to go in, but that when you get disappointed, that's when the rejection may come online. And that's why it may look avoidant. And for people who are trying to understand about attachment, I did do a more comprehensive episode on attachment in episode four, I think it is, maybe five. It's around that time. It was pretty early on. I also really enjoy looking at things in under the frame of attachment. And for the real brief overview, when we talk about attachment style, this is different than the attachment types that we're talking about in the Enneagram. I always like to make that clear. And what Carolyn is referencing is that we have anxious attachment, which is more emotional there's more leaning in, there's more chasing. The people may even suffer with enmeshment or codependency. There's avoidant attachment, which people, um, when their nervous systems get dysregulated, they, they like to self-soothe. They don't need another person to soothe. So they pull back and they go inside of themselves and they do whatever it is they do to soothe in an avoidantly attached way. And then disorganized attachment my understanding is that we go into disorganized attachment when there's a real traumatized piece of ourselves and disorganized attachment looks more violent than anxious attachment or avoidant attachment. It's more fueled, it's more dramatic, and it's kind of all over the place. And there's more of an, an element of dissociation. I would say the loss of presence is bigger than the loss of presence that happens with anxious or avoidant and I just came out of a five-day training with Sarah Payton, and she said something that was really interesting. And if you take an attachment quiz either on Sarah Payton's website or Diane Poole Heller is the other one that has a lot of work on attachment and a free quiz that people can take, you'll see that we're not 100% securely attached or 100% disorganized. 
we have these little pieces. And the way I describe it, or that I've heard from Sarah, is that we all have these little bubbles of trauma. And when people are walking through our lives, sometimes when they step into a trauma bubble, they might ignite disorganized attachment. As we heal disorganized attachment, the normal trajectory is that it be- we become more avoidant. And then as we heal our avoidant attachment stuff, we become more anxious. And so having anxious attachment is actually a sign that earned secure attachment is right on the horizon. So for anybody that's kind of working with your stuff, just know that um, we're not all one thing or another and how we recover from our attachment wounds, which everyone has on some level, I would go out as a limb to say nobody is 100% securely attached You just haven't had somebody that triggered you enough if you think that you are, or you're enlightened. You may be enlightened. I'll I'll leave that possibility open. We all have some of these wounds. How is all that for you to hear, Carolyn? Yeah, yeah, generally, yeah, I I totally agree. I think like, even though I use the term disorganized myself, I have to admit though that when I read definitions of disorganized, that also doesn't feel quite right. Like I think, I think what I've kind of come to is just mainly that I think I, what fuels my nervous system is like an anxious attachment you know like the motivation that would create the you know the the what flares up my nervous system but that my strategies for dealing with it are more like avoidance strategies yeah well and it sounds like you go to that eight arrow which you know can be violent and can be and i'm not saying you're violent i'm just when i mean violent even yelling or being verbally aggressive with words or something you know that's what most of us do when we get triggered if we have an arrow that takes us in that direction. So I heard that you also did an interview with Catherine Fav and that she helped you find your way to TriType. Some people like TriType, some people don't. How was that interview with her and what did you learn or discover? Yeah, it was it was definitely really interesting because in talking with her, she even what I got out of the test. So out of, I had done the test actually a couple of times. The first time it didn't um, get emailed to me. And so like the first time I got like 278 and then the second time I got 279, um, which made a lot of sense to me. But then in talking with her, she felt like I was probably more 269. Interesting. Um, Yeah. why. And so... Well, she felt pretty sure that she was, you know, she's an eight herself. And so she was like, she was like, eight is not what fuels you. She was like, you know, she's like, you know, there might be things that you can act in a way that's like an eightness, but she's like, you know, it's not your core, you know, your core fears, you know, it's like, and certainly the part, like, I mean, I'm, I'm conflict averse. Like, I don't like conflict, but I resonated with the part of the eight that, I mean, I'm a great initiator. Like I'm a huge initiator. Like I'm, I have tons of initiating energy in me and I can be, I've been told that I can be intimidating. And so like, I think I was the part of it was speaking to me, but she was like, that's not your core stuff. And I just want to name that I mistyped as an eight in the beginning. And as I actually learned the Enneagram, like there's no eight in me either. It's like, just because you're an assertive type, just because you're an initiator, like that's not eight. So I think that's important to name. Thanks for highlighting that. Yeah. Tell us about the other pieces. Then I think she kind of got the six a little bit from, I guess there was just some back and forth. Well, interesting enough, I think is like when I did the test, um, I was in a place of actually doubting a bit more my inner knowing, which is actually not a super familiar place for me to be in. So I think, I think a lot of indecisiveness came up in the testing that made her go, I think it's actually kind of a six. 
you're not sure about that, it might not be sick. And I'm still not totally sure about it because I think it's also like when I read the definitions of both 279, that was the interesting thing is that the definition of the 278 out of all three of those is what resonated more with me though. Okay. But like the overall definition, you know, and like both the 269 and the 279, there is something that doesn't quite ring true for me. Like they're a bit too positive, <laughs> like the yeah. type, the, the overallness. And I'm like, I don't, don't fully resonate with being that positive. Yeah. Um, but I'm the nine makes sense though. Like I think the two and the nine are, cor- are, are correct. Okay. When I think about it. And so, so it's probably is a six or a seven, but in the middle, why of not life. a five? Yeah. Uh, no, I usually score pretty low on that one. I mean, I could, I could go and check, but generally five is one of my lower numbers, I think. Yeah. Okay. You bit surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just feeling like two, seven, nine, too much positivity. There's not that much positivity in you. I mean, I, I don't think I'm a negative person, but yeah. like there's something in the description of it that, you know, they said like two, seven, nine is like the most positive out of all of the Enneagrams. Right. And I'm like, mm, but. Um, big hormone Enneagram also calls that the DJ trifix. Like if you think of the personality of the person that's got DJ energy vibe, are you the DJ at parties and things like that? No. no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I agree with you. I like the two and the nine on you. And if it's not five, then it would have to be six if we were using that model. Yeah. 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 And so, so, pro- so probably, it probably is two, six, nine and it's, you know, it's called the good cemetery. Samaritan. Yeah. So, you know, maybe there's something there. I mean, it's possible. The six is the type that I actually have understood the least out of all of the types. So it's possible that I'm just not recognizing the six energy in me, that there's some shadow there. And I'd have been aware of that for a little bit. So it probably is two, six, nine, and I'm still probably excavating a little bit how sixness shows up in me. Do you consider yourself to be loyal and committed? Definitely loyal and committed. Um, That's probably your six. Yeah. 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 So that probably is the six. And And also six can be um, flip around between anxious and like disorganized or, you know, like if we think about the defense structure of six, it can look like an eight when they get triggered, they'll might do fight, but they also might do fawn. So, you know, they, that's why it's a confusing type because they can show up in so many different flavors. Totally. And I, I think like for, I think the part that I was struggling to recognize too, is that like, I'm someone that I, I think I was saying that earlier, like generally, actually, I move, I, I move actually from a deep sense of inner knowing, like I often yeah. just have a sense and maybe that is tied to the sexual instinct as well. Like I, I let myself just kind of go where I need to go. And I kind of generally trust that I'm moving in the right direction. Yeah. And it becomes obvious when I'm not in that space, just rec- just recently, actually, I was, I was tuning into somatically how it feels when I'm not in that and yeah. being able to connect to that hypervigilance that I think sixes can experience a lot or that sense of just this energy that's very like up here. Yeah. I realized that I'm like, yeah, like, actually that's, that's not an energy that I move from very frequently. But you're not a six. So you a- may have the high side of six. Do you know but what I mean? True. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you may not identify with the defense structures of six because those aren't your defenses, but that could be one of your powers, like one of your what A.H. Almas, who wrote the keys to the Enneagram, he talks about point six energy as will. Yes. And it's like that once I have committed to something, I have access to a lot of point six energy because we know that like sixes are one of the most persistent 
intense, hard workers. Like the sixes are the ones who will die on the battlefield for their cause. You know, they're very committed. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So now let's talk about your instincts. So why are you a sexual too? Yeah, I think there was two different moments that I think for me kind of like highlighted things that I read or that was told that like really like landed for me. And like one thing was a friend of mine a few years ago had written me this little card with the poem like Wild Geese of Mary Oliver's Wild Geese. And, uh, you know, and there's this one section that says like she lets herself love what she loves. That is so me. Like that is so me that I let myself just, and it's true. Like I have such a, I go with what feels good. You know, like it's like something pulls me a certain direction and that's what I'm doing. And it's how like a lot of my decision-making has been informed. And when you say I love, like allowing yourself to love what you love, is this in what type of context? Is this relationships? Is this friendships? Is this sexual intimate partnerships? Is this work? Is it all of it? Can you give me a little bit more of a sense? I mean, honestly, it's kind of like in all things, like it's, I, you know, like feedback that I've been given before too, kind of my whole life is that you can't put me in a box. I mean, you know, no one likes to feel that you can put someone in a box, obviously, but it's like, my interests are so diverse. My friend groups are so diverse. You know, if I think about like how I, you know, for example, okay, how I've gone to, I've traveled around the world, more often than not, when I pick a place, it's kind of like all of a sudden I'm like, you know, Nepal would seem like a cool place to go. Okay, that's where I'm going to go. You know, mm-hmm. and then and that's what I do. Yeah. Or again, like the Enneagram. That was another example, right? I listened to one podcast and I'm like, yes, I like this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and dive into this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm willing. Yeah. Like, I mean, like sexually, like I always had a lot of acceptance around like being okay with what turns me on and following those urges. Um, and are you gay, straight, bi? What, how do you identify? Um, these days, probably pansexual. Like, I mean, I would have identified as like bisexual before I knew the term pansexual. And I think that now probably pan works, which again, is actually an example of that, right? Like I can be attracted to any, I can be attracted and in relationship with any sex. Okay. Um, it's the person that it's, it's again, it's the person. And if they're that person's interesting to me, then I can become attracted to them. Right. And are you ever like, and how about on the monogamy versus polyamory spectrum? Do you feel like you're solidly one or the other or where on that spectrum do you feel like you live? Yeah, I have always had open relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've never been monogamous my whole, uh, other than as a teenager, I've always, I've always been in open relationships, less polyamory. I've, I've dabbled in polyamory a little bit and I think I'm probably... Uh, I'm probably still open to it again, probably with the right person. My experience with polyamory specifically wasn't all that positive with the partner that I was with at the time. Um, so I'm more, I probably define myself more as being into open relationships and being able to have the freedom to act on the sexual interest if it's there, as opposed to necessarily being in like two like, committed relationships at the same time. Yeah. So you um, don't want to be like having structure and some sense of ownership or some sense of responsibility. You really want it very open, very free. Yeah. 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 So if you are polyamorous, like, so here's a question, like when you do have an intimate relationship with somebody, is there always a emotional or personal connection? Or do you sometimes just see a body and you're like, I want to have sex with that. And it doesn't really have to do with anything else you know about that person. It's a very like biological, I want sex with that being there, but without knowing much else about them. 
Yeah, I would say that that yeah, I would say that that's probably the case. Though though having obviously having an emotional connection is going to like deepen that, you know, mm-hmm. like it's like but it can but it's a starting point. Like I can I can certainly and certainly have had sex with people that like yeah, you know, personality-wise probably would not have been in sync, but there was something about like about that person that I that I wanted. Right. I mean, in some ways my dynamic with my roommate is a perfect kind of example of that so I live with a with a man and to be honest like my dynamic with him I think is where you can see the sexual instinct and how it can go astray because it's like it's been this kind of you know somewhat I think like unhealthy pull towards him where it's like I can objectively look at our dynamic and go it would be better if we were not having sex and it would be you know, and again, in personality-wise, he's a, he's a self-preservation eight. My, my sense is that he's a self-preservation eight, and I think at very average levels. And so, and yet, so really values-wise, like, there's not a lot we have in common. There's not much that should really be connecting me to him. And yet there's this, like, I want. I yeah. want, I will pursue, I'm going to get. Yeah. Um, and uh, without much attention to... Like, what do I want? Like, do I still, do, am I actually interested in this person? Yeah. You know, like, I remember that being in, like, in John's book that I was like, yeah, like that, you know, again, part of that, I think, is the two structure as well, that like that, like, you know, do when do, do I ever stop and ask myself, but actually, do I want this person? Right. Like, I can be so focused on, do they want me? Do they want me that I don't stop and go, but do I want them? Yeah. I think it's like, you know, there's so many times that I love my sexual instinct and I love, there's so much of it that feels really healthy and that's like, there's, there's a lot of just life force energy in me that I really appreciate. But in that dynamic, I can see where there's the the unhealthiness of it of where there's this. Well, and I think that if your sexual instinct is online and you're very um, connected to it, regardless of where it is in your stack, when you are allowing it to express, there are things about the sexual instinct where you're like, what the hell? Like it doesn't make any sense to your self-preservation instinct or your social instinct. And yet here it is. So for the people who listened to the episode that I did with one of my partners, Drew, um, we talked about the struggles of the three, nine pairing and we, you know, he is the primary person that I have had the strongest sexual instinctual connection with and he with me. And it's just kind of this funny thing where when we talk about our connection, it's like, why are you with me? And like, we'll ask each other that question. And because we're both attachment types. So we also both don't know our own location. So it's a really, really funny relationship where it's like, honestly, I have no idea why I'm with you because I can't not be with you is often like what we'll say. It's just like, oh my God, I hate myself for being so drawn into you. It's like a drug. It's like, it's completely, it doesn't make any logical sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like if you are listening and you have relationships like this in your life, it's sexual instinctual energy. And it also means that you probably have some trauma and some attachment stuff that this relationship can be the perfect stimulus for working with that is also what I find. What do you think? Well, <laughs> I could get into a deep dive on that because that's literally been like I've been convinced from the beginning that there's something about his presence in my life that was meant to kind of like uncover a lot of my attachment stuff and that's what I've come to realize pretty recently is that I'm I'm totally react I'm totally acting out attachment stuff yeah and uh and object relation stuff if he's innate 
Totally. And so but that being said, it's also been like, it's, that's not how I'm going to heal my attachment stuff is not with like an avoidant, you know, like avoidant fixated eight is not who I'm going to be able to heal my attachment stuff with. Right. But it is certainly why it's also certainly why it's been such a pull and why it's been so consuming. And I've been kind of active, you know, I've been really actively recently in a process of kind of you know, turning more towards myself and like trying to, I'm really trying to consciously now like separate myself. Yes. Like uncouple myself, you know, from from this. Well, and Drew and I had to move out with each other to do that. So we've now been not living together for over a year. And I think that when you're living with somebody, it is hard because you're having so many touch points that Mm -hmm. if you are identifying with I sometimes have trouble finding my ground around this person. I agree that it doesn't mean don't ever see each other again, unless there's such unhealthy stuff going on and you find yourself getting triggered and like pulled back into it in a way that really, really makes you sad. But I think just because somebody is activating things in you, that could be the perfect relationship for healing and growing and transcending whatever needs to be addressed in that moment. Mm-hmm. So talk about your other two instincts. You said that you'd probably put social lower than self-pres. Why is that? Uh, you know, yeah, mainly because I just feel like the self-pres is where I have the most like wiggle room. You know, it's like if it going back to kind of like what Russ talked about, like that it's kind of the one that like, you know, you kind of do with ease. It's just not a lot of fuel, right? Like it's like you do it, you can do it well, but neither is it like hijacking anything, you know, and I feel like that's where I'm at. Like I, I work out, you know, four days a week. And that's like a a very strong, you know, habit for me. I, you know, I eat well, I pay my bills, I get done what needs to get done. But but I also yeah, it's not, uh, you know, my home's important to me. And I like kind of taking care of my home and and but it's like, it's not what fuels me, you know, it's and I can enjoy it. Like, it's also not like the blindness in terms of I don't and it doesn't sound like you're neurotic there either. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of it's a non thing, you know, totally makes sense. Of course, and of course, if there's times where something is not happening, you know, like if I was having some stress around some bills, of course, I was having some anxiety, you know, but I think that there's like, it's normal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And how about um, social? Why is that third? Like, what are your hangups at all around social instinct? Yeah, and that's the part that's really interesting to me is, and that I think I referred more and more to kind of, I think some of Russ's teachings is that I think part that doesn't resonate is that I'm actually like, I'm very, very good at maintaining my relationships with friends, you know, Mm -hmm. like that. But again, like I'm a two. So Mm -hmm. like, it makes that's like the, the struggle of like how the two, how the type and the instincts kind of interplay. Yeah. So that particular piece really doesn't resonate. Like I'm very, very good at maintaining good and close relationships with, with friends. Mm-hmm. But the part around, like, I don't trust what I perceive. Like I, I've been, I've been becoming, I've been realizing recently that I think I do pick up on social cues, but I don't trust them. And like, I don't trust that what I'm picking up on is accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I might understand is that that can be kind of an indication of like a social blind. Do you have any examples of where you did something socially awkward or like you missed something that was harmful in any way to yourself uh, or another person? 
I mean, I don't know if I have a particular examples of it, but I mean, but I can get into that. I can definitely get into that place of like, did I do something weird? Like, was that awkward? Like, you know, do they like me? Like, and not just get feedback that that is happening a lot. Not as, yeah, I don't necessarily get feedback that that's happening a lot, but it's like, I doubt my own perceptions around it. Well, when we talk about the social two, we tend to say that's that social twos can be um, mistyped as threes because they're very ambitious, like very career focused, really do enjoy, it's been said, being the power behind the throne, like associated with powerful, growing individuals or organizations. And they can be like a workaholic and they really like being like out on stage and seen and, you know, they want to be the one that people are coming to for whatever is needed. Do you identify with that? I don't identify with that at all. Okay. So, yeah. So I'm liking your stack. I actually feel like I would agree. I'm going to hope John listens to this episode and I'd love to hear what he says because, yeah, you definitely, I think that there is so much nuance here. And why do you have a three wing? Like, why did you pick three wing over one wing? I mean, they're, they're, they're close. Like, I think that, I mean, and, and the numbers wise, they were the same. Okay. But again, I think when I look at like the definition of a two wing three, that's me. Okay. Like, especially the part around the way that, you know, like, it's true that the way that I give to others, it's not so much in like, I'm not particularly caretaking. And that might be because my job, I do so much of that in my job that I come home and it's like not necessarily what I want to be doing. But I'm not the first person to go bring someone a can of, you know, a bowl of soup when they're sick. Like, that's actually right. my, but, but I do use my friendship like as like, that's how I, like, that's how I give like, and, yeah. and that's cost that that's kind of the two wing three that I see like my, like how I give or is, is less in the caretaking and more of like who I am, like right. I'm giving of myself like to you. And that could be in any way in many different like forms. Yeah. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Oh, and I think just the piece around, like, again, like the, I mean, one has a lot of initiatory, initiative energy as well, but like I resonate too with not so much like the image making of the three, but like the flow, like when they talk about like the, you know, like the virtue of the three and like that, that flow that you can have when you're doing things like, yeah, like that, that's also kind of me. As yeah. Well. And like with three, we talk about passion, purpose, mission. It sounds like you have easy access to knowing what you're doing, why you're doing it, and just really like living that. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, that being said, the other reason why I think I'm also social blind is I think I, I think one of the things that I've been trying to like elevate and part of coming in here to do this interview was for that reason too, is like, I also don't, I still haven't stepped into, I think how I can participate in the world. Yeah. You know, and, and also it's been a new thing for me to, I've moved from being an atheist to now being more agnostic like I now have a desire to believe in something greater than me but I'm not actually there yet like you know it's a stretch it's actually a huge stretch for me but I I want to now because I understand that it would be the undoing of my fixation so it's a bit of a cognitive thing like I want to believe in something bigger than me yeah really a big part of me doesn't still so so like that relationship of myself to the larger world is one that I think is still kind of social blind like And I totally get that because when I describe my social instinct, I mean, I'm self-pressed social because I have really struggled both as a three and as sexual blind with discovering my own flavor. Like I lead with work, which is a very self-pressed social three thing. 
and my family and, you know, on the social instinctual level, like my family has been a core thing. And then like my patients have been like a very core thing. Like there's that social um, three with a two wing, you know, just like you're two with a three wing, you're a midwife taking care of mothers getting birth. I'm a three with a two wing because being a doctor is often thought of as a little more prestigious than a midwife or the nursing careers, I would say. So I think you find more threes in as doctors and more twos as nurses and midwives is just an observation that I'm making because there's a little bit of that statusy thing that comes out, but it's still all working in healthcare. Like you find lots of social instinctual people, I think, working in healthcare because you've got to take care of your patient and you've got to take care of their family. And there's like a lot of people involved in it. So I think that if you're social blind and you want to work in healthcare, you'll find those people in pathology because they don't have to deal with people or like uh, radiology because they just look at the film. So you can find them there. But if you have a very like dealing with people in sickness and in very tender moments like birth or death, that is the use of social instinctual energy. But I resonate with this whole not taking it beyond my work. You know, like I haven't really been looking at how can I have a social impact that is bigger than the circle of my family and the circle of my patients. So now I'm actually really caring about getting involved in bigger communities and actually addressing things that are having very big sociocultural impacts, I would say. But I put sexual blind because I'm just starting to realize like, who I am, what is my authentic self, what does turn me on, you know, what turns me off. Because in general, I think I have just been a lot more attachment style. Like I want to have a, an attachment with you and I forget to even look in, like, does this attachment turn me on or not? Like that's been an area that I have to be real conscious about. Hmm. Whereas I sense that, you know, like what you're drawn to, what you're not. I've only started to feel like that's true for me in the last couple of years. But I know that I've loved this conversation. I know that we both have other calls to get to. And so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up for now. But it sounds like we could probably talk about other things in the future if you were willing well, maybe, to come back again. Totally. I will maybe just add one thing because I think just it might be really helpful yeah. for like the, I think just for like the listeners. Like I yeah. think one thing too that I think helped me know the difference I think between for me if I was sexual or social it was a little bit like Julie's um integration session where she was like and I and I've recognized that since if I think about if it's more important for me to belong or if it's more important to me for me to be wanted it was really clear for me that it was more important for me to be wanted okay um, and for than to have like belonging and so, and yet at the same time, what's really interesting is that with John's book, so also just to be their confusing part, I feel like he talks about how if you're social dominant, there's the fears of abandonment or what are really strong for you. Yeah. And that's really strong for me. <laughs> right. So, well, and I think that's a heart centered thing. Yeah. I think yeah. that heart centered types are very, so all of us are going to have that, but we're not all social dominant. You tripped me up a little bit with, do I want to be desired or do I want to belong with my partner, like my one-to-one -one partnerships, I want to be desired. So I think that sexual instinct, like I'm very clear on that, that I'm only going to pick sexual partners from now on where there is this experience of being desired. 
Now that can be problematic because in long-term committed relationships, if you don't fuel, you know, Esther Perel writes this book, How to Maintain Passion and Romance in a Long-Term Committed Relationship. It's called Mating in Captivity. So I have struggled with that, which is often why I leave my relationships because if I'm not experiencing desire from my partner and if I'm not desiring them, there was more attachment when I was married for 17 years around staying in that container, even when that need wasn't being met. But at the end of the day, I ended up leaving it because the desire was more important than the belonging to the family unit. But that also didn't happen for me until I was 38. So I lived a very long time not prioritizing that. And I would say that was actually my sexual blind spot waking up. And now that I am connected to how important desire is, this is why I'm very hesitant to ever get married again because I need to do more field research as to what is my relationship to this whole concept of desire and do I believe that people can maintain passion and romance and long-term committed relationships? And if we can't, what are other strategies for navigating all the different reasons why we go into relationship? Yeah, totally. Well, thank you, Carolyn. I really appreciate you coming on. I think this is a wonderful addition to the collection and I look forward to keep getting to know you in the future. Likewise. Yeah. Happy to come back anytime. And yeah, I look forward to chatting with you more too, Kara. Thank you. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.